Good morning, all. Good morning, all. Um, but we're going to take a break from um, the I Am series, and we're going to have, uh, I forgot to tell you this last week, but our brother Ray is going to teach us today and next week uh, with regard to uh, missions. So I'm invite you up here, brother. You can open us in prayer. Teach on. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, this new day that we have to gather together and uh, meet together as your church and to worship together, to learn from your word and unite our hearts in prayer. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be with us today, that all that we say and do would be for your honor and glory, and that you would receive all the praise. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Um, let me uh, just mention we have a table out in the... Is this the vestibule? The, the Foyer, like foyer. The foyer out in the foyer, yeah. um, the narthex. There's all kinds of things. It's right outside these doors, um, and uh, there's some things there about the International uh, Day of Prayer. And we encourage you to look there. There's some handouts for you there to encourage you in your prayers. Peggy and I have put together a new prayer card for you to um, take and and. Plant upon your forehead and dangle in front of your eyes so that you pray for us 24-7. But if you can't do that, you could put it on your refrigerator, at least, to remind you. But anyway, please do that and, and uh, enjoy that. Then, also, I just want to mention that after the worship service this morning, we're, we're having a missions meeting. And uh, there will be a number of things covered in that, but one of the things is I'm going to be given a little report, a brief report on my activities this past year. Okay, but uh, for this morning now for our Sunday school, let me ask you to open your copies of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, and we will come back to a very familiar passage there this morning, but in conjunction with the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, I was asked this week, and next, to teach a couple of Sunday school classes on the topic of global missions. Of course, this topic is very dear to my heart. And it is my hope that our brief time considering this topic will advance all of our interests in this vital aspect of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Global missions is a fundamental component of every Christian's calling while living in Christ, to some degree, one way or another. And I want to develop these lessons following the threefold approach of thinking, doing, or excuse me, thinking, loving, doing. This threefold paradigm grew out of a conference sponsored by John Piper and Desiring God Ministries from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, and was promoted in a book featuring several of the keynote speakers at that conference. We might look at the topic from the perspective of our heads, 
our hearts, and our hands. That is, our thinking is the involvement of our heads, our loving is the involvement of our hearts, and our doing is the involvement of our hands. Another way to think of it as how we do missions intellectually, emotionally, and physically. So you can see that we, we want to take a holistic approach to this particular topic. Tabiti Anyabwile said this, The fullest expression of Christian living is a combination of head, heart, and hands. It involves receiving truth through the head, which ignites new affections in the heart and flows out in actions through the hands. My goal is to consider for this time, so very briefly, how we ought to think about global missions. What do we need to understand about God's intentions for his people around the world? Then next week, I hope we can catch some of the emotional passion, both divine and human, that surrounds the dynamic of missions. And finally, I want to offer some suggestions as to what we can and or ought to be doing in a practical sense as individuals, families, and a local church about missions. And I want to start with this propositional statement. It has always been God's intention to fill the earth with his glory through his people. Okay, let me repeat that. It has always been God's intention to fill the earth with his glory through his people. And we are his people. An understanding of the scriptures from a biblical theology perspective makes it abundantly clear that God's purposes in the unfolding of history from the beginning has been the redemption of his creation and his elect from the devastation of the fall. As we've been well taught from this pulpit, from the beginning, the meaning of all historical events point like a laser to the redemptive activity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection in victory from the grave. God is all about redemption, which glorifies him. From Adam to Noah to Abraham through David and the incarnation of Jesus Christ himself, through the apostles and church fathers, Right up to our present day, God is redeeming his people, building his kingdom, filling the earth with his glory in anticipation and preparation for the new earth and new eternity. And that process extends to the elect from the whole of the human race and the entire earth. And we also understand that because of the diabolical, wicked schemes of the vile enemy, that old serpent, Satan. And as a result of man's rebellion against, God, against the holy God, the whole earth is broken, corrupted, and under the curse of sin and death. The world is a dark, dark place. And men and women, boys and girls, all across the globe 
are writhing spiritually and often physically under the torments and terrors of alienation from the way, the truth, and the life. But it has always been God's intention to fill the earth with his glory through his people. And he has sent out and is sending out his emissaries, his heralds, his evangelists and preachers and teachers, his missionaries to the ends of the earth, to gather in the elect, to complete the number of chosen ones, to fill the ranks of the people of God, to fill the earth with his glory. And he does this through his people. We call this missions. And we, my brothers and sisters, we are his people. He intends for us to participate with him in order to fill the earth with his glory. How? Now, I want to interject here for the purpose of clarification just a definitive word about the term missions. Our focus right now is on world or global missions. That is historically within the ecclesiastical community different than the idea which has gained great notoriety recently of mission or missional. So we're not talking about the reality that every Christian has a calling of some sort and we realize that calling or callings may change over time and circumstances. In that sense, we are all on mission or missional. However, in this case, we are referring to something entirely different. Andy Johnson, associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., in his short but stellar book, Missions, How the Church Goes Global, defines our topic this way. Missions is, he says, the unique, deliberate gospel mission of the church to make disciples of all the nations. Evangelism that takes the gospel across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries that gathers churches and teaches them to obey everything Jesus commanded. So that is the context out of which we are speaking. Simply stated, the dictionary definition, which historically men have assigned to the idea of Christian missions, would be the sending forth of men with authority to preach or spread the gospel. Okay? But initially, we want to consider whether or not the concept of sending forth individuals to preach the good news of Jesus Christ is a biblical one. That is, what is the biblical mandate or warrant for the work of missions? We begin by realizing that ultimately, world missions is God's work. Just as God is the instigator and initiator of the work of redemption in your own heart, he is the instigator and initiator of the work of redemption around the globe. Notice the focus of Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men to God, for God, from every tribe 
and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. John Piper said, world missions is not ultimately dependent on human initiative or human wisdom or human perseverance. It is ultimately dependent on the power and wisdom and faithfulness of the risen and living Christ to keep his promise. I will build my church. Andy Johnson adds, God is a missionary God. He has a passion for the nations. And scripture is full of that passion. From the books of Moses, through the histories, to the prophets, and on throughout the gospels and epistles. God's passion to call worshipers from all languages, tribes, people, and nations is foundational. By the way, if you have not already done so, I highly recommend you read John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. In it, Piper shows, as my sister put it, how tightly woven God's glory is with missions. Well, with the understanding that global missions is first and foremost the work of God, indeed, part of the redeeming work of our Lord Jesus Christ, what then is our part to be? To answer that, let us go to the scriptures. For this I am reflecting to a certain extent on the thoughts of Pastor Dave Merrick. And particularly to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, which is often referred to as the Lord's Great Commission. The Word of God says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the earth. Now please keep in mind that, as we have already said, there were many indications of God's desire and purpose for the worldwide extension of gospel labors long before the Lord spoke his great commission. It did not come out of the blue, disjointed from all of God's revelation before. However, it was true that before our Lord uttered the great commission, the possession of the revealed word of God and true worship of God were primarily limited to physical Jews and a few Gentile proselytes. Even during his ministry as the God-man on earth, Jesus' labors and those of his disciples were mainly limited to the Jews. So now, as the recently crucified and risen Lord Jesus stood before his followers and uttered the Great Commission, he was calling them to a task which for them and the rest of God's people was basically new in more ways than one. This was a significant moment in the history of redemption. It was a radical moment for the disciples, and it is for us as well. What did he tell them? And by extension, what did our Lord, 
to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, what did he tell us? Let us consider the mandate for missions, which is the thinking part of our trilogy. And we will spend the remainder of our time in this session on this. But even that, by necessity, this must be a cursory overview. As a, as a teacher, I just have to say that. We're just touching the surface, scratching the surface, as it were. Next time, we will consider the loving and doing perspectives. Notice two aspects that underscore the authority of our Lord's commission. First, notice its nature. The Lord Jesus did not express his commission as a desire or a wish or a premonition of what might happen in the future. He spoke it as a command. He ordered, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, the command is actually to make disciples. The word translated go is an aorist passive participle, which I think should best be understood as having gone. I prefer a more literal translation like this. Therefore, having gone. This, uh, the command make disciples, that is an aorist active imperative. A command with a continuing action. Sorry for the grammar lesson. But it does matter for this reason. The going is assumed and to be continuous. Okay? The going is assumed by our Lord. And it is to be continuous. Our Lord assumes that his followers will be, in some sense going and continuing to go. And that makes this an all-inclusive commission for those who can't physically go somewhere else must still participate in the going. Notably, they can be going by sending and supporting those who do physically go. The only imperative here for all of Christ's followers is to make disciples. That's the imperative. Okay, then, how? Well, he tells us, baptizing, teaching, which for you grammarians out there are present participles. Just threw that in there. These words were not an option to be considered, among other options, by those to whom he spoke. He here was presenting his marching orders for his disciples, which were to be obeyed no matter what the result might be. And failure to obey these orders would rightly bring into question whether one truly was a follower of this master. But not only was the nature of this commission that of command, notice also its authority. Notice the therefore in our Lord's command, go therefore and make disciples. What is the therefore, therefore? Jesus was not wrongfully assuming authority which he did not possess when he uttered the command of the Great Commission. He was one who as God himself and as triumphant Savior over the cross and grave 
could legitimately declare all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. At the highest and farthest reaches of the heavens, the Lord Jesus is master, the authority there. And no matter where you go on earth, no matter what continent or on what sea, no matter whether on the highest mountain or in the lowest valley, no matter what tribe or tongue or nation, and no matter what event, the Lord Jesus is master. Furthermore, he has not been given just a little authority over a few subjects or over a small sphere of human or earthly life. All authority over all men and all the created order has been given to Jesus by the only one able to do so, God the Father. The Lord Jesus here was declaring himself to be unrestricted sovereign over the entire created universe. And it was as such a sovereign God and Lord directing everything that takes place in it that he commanded his disciples to go and make more disciples to all nations. However, it was not merely the authority of one person of the Godhead, God the Son, which stood behind this commission. When our Lord commanded his disciples to baptize the new disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, he was declaring that his great commission was the will of all three persons of the Trinity. And therefore, based upon the authority of God the Father and of God the Holy Spirit as well as of himself. Great indeed, supreme, was the authority which lay behind the mandate. Well, consider the commissioned. We might ask, to whom was the commission given? Notice that this commission was commanded of a specific group of people here in the context. Notice verses 16 and 17. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. It was the remaining eleven apostles of the original twelve to whom Jesus here spoke. So these words clearly applied to them. But perhaps that's where its application stopped. On what basis do we turn to such a command and view it as having application to ourselves today? Well, observe two things in our text which indicate that this command still applies to Christians today. First, the fact that these 11 disciples were told to teach new disciples of Christ to observe all things that he commanded them certainly appeared to expect that the new disciples will obey the same commands given to the original 11, unless clearly indicated otherwise. And... Of course, one of those things commanded of the eleven was this very commission. But furthermore, there is in this commission itself a clear indication that it was to remain binding upon the church of Christ throughout its history on earth. Observe that the Lord ended the great commission with this promise. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When is the end of the age? We understand that the end of the age to be when Jesus returns in victory and judgment. Now, this promise, striking in its implications for the 11 apostles, have for many centuries been in their grave. They're long gone. Yet the Lord promised his presence with those carrying out this commission on earth until the present order comes to an end with his return, the end of the age. Clearly, he intended that his church on earth with her leaders continue to carry out these marching orders until the present age has ended. The Great Commission was not limited to just the apostles, but was initially given to them as the highest leaders of the church of Christ, which was to be established, and as the instruments through which divine revelation would come to the church. Also, from a practical standpoint, it is unreasonable to insist that this commission was restricted to the 11 apostles only. There is simply no way they could possibly disciple all nations. The 11 were set the pattern, or the 11 were to set the pattern for missions, which they did. But the commission was to be carried forth beyond their earthly lives. The Great Commission continues to be just as applicable to those of us who are disciples of Christ today and members of his church, as it was to the original 11 apostles. It has always been God's intention to fill the earth with his glory through his people, and we are his people. It is the will of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the triune God for us to carry out his great commission. Notice its activities then. What is it that the Lord Jesus was telling his followers to do throughout this present age? And here, I would have you notice two things. First, the central duty. As we have already pointed out, there is one main verb of command in verses 19 to 28. With, the other, with three other verbal forms closely related to and subordinate to the main verb. The main verb of command is translated, make disciples. The idea of going, baptizing, and teaching are all closely related to and subordinate to this central command. What then did our Lord mean by make disciples? The basic idea of being a disciple is being a learner or student or pupil of someone else. Thus, the Lord was commanding us to labor to make people around us learners or students or pupils of another person. So were the apostles and are we to make people disciples of ourselves? Well, certainly not although that is exactly what so many so-called spiritual leaders are doing. That other person, of course, is Jesus Christ. For later, in this commission, he commanded that we teach these disciples to observe all the things that he has commanded us. We are to seek to make men ultimately students 
or learners who sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus and receive gladly and obediently his instruction as recorded in his word. How then do we go about doing that? We here at Pacific Hope Church know that no one by nature is a disciple or student of Jesus Christ, and that the living God must act if he or she would ever become a disciple. God must do his sovereignly gracious work in order for anyone to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. However, the focus of our text is not upon God's activity in the making of disciples. It is upon our activity. It was disciples of Jesus who were here commanded by our Lord to make new disciples. How then are we to do that? If we are to make people to become learners of Christ, then we must speak to them what Christ has taught and urge them to respond aright to it in faith and repentance. We must say what Jesus said when he began his earthly labors in Galilee, repent and believe in the gospel. From Mark 1. We must tell hopelessly lost people of God's perfectly holy character and law. We must speak to them of their sin and the hell which it deserves. We must proclaim the loving and gracious provision of God for sinners in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the substitute bearing the wrath of God for sinners. And we must urge upon them their duty to turn radically away from their course of rebellion and to believe the gospel. We must speak the gospel sincerely and effectively in dependence upon the Lord and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not satisfied to merely deliver the message, but earnestly seeking to see people truly become glad and willing and obedient learners and students of Christ. In other words, true Christians, real disciples. This is the central task to which the Lord called his disciples. This is the central task to which he has called us. We call this evangelism. However, evangelism is not all there is to this commission. We are also given two essential accompaniments to this central duty of making disciples. Two things which must be present if the central duty is to be considered as adequately accomplished. As we make disciples, we are, first of all, to in a continuing way be engaged in baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Where individuals are being made disciples of Christ, they should also take upon themselves the open mark of that newly begun discipleship in the waters of baptism. This also speaks to, as we find later in the New Testament teaching, local church planting. But there is a second essential component here as well, which also must be carried out in a continuing way. And sadly, I might add, has often been neglected 
in modern missions. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It stands to reason that if lost individuals have been made into students or disciples of Christ, they will continue in an ongoing way to be instructed regarding that which their divine teacher has revealed for their instruction. The student will be like his teacher. This is central to the very idea of being a disciple. By way of summary then, what are the activities commanded to the Great Commission? What is it which Christ commanded us to do? Following the extended teachings of Jesus, we are to be about the task of building his kingdom by building his church. We are most basically to seek to make disciples of Christ from among the men, the lost men and women and children around us by preaching the gospel. But closely connected, we are to seek to gather them together into local churches through the, the entry sacrament of baptism. And in and through those local churches, we are to train the new saints how to live in obedience to and service of the master, the king. In essence, we are to fulfill and train others to fulfill the cultural and dominion mandate. Incidentally, and this deserves a study of its own, G.K. Beale sees the Great Commission as a renewal of the original commission given Adam and reiterated to Abraham to fill the earth with his glory. Again, we see it has always been God's intention to fill the earth with his glory through his people. And I remind you, we are his people. But let's notice the focus. It is outward not inward. It is very easy for us as Christians to become very comfortable in our Christian homes and weekly church gatherings with primarily other Christians. But the words of Matthew 28, 19 do not allow such an inward, self-centered, and self-preoccupied focus to predominate in our lives if we would obey our Lord as his disciples. Therefore, having gone, Make disciples. We are called to look out beyond our comfortable circles and to see the mass of lost humanity which surrounds us. And then we are called to go to those fields wide unto harvest with the gospel and seek to see them made into disciples of the Lord and baptized and joined to a well-ordered, faithful, missional local church. And we seek to see these new disciples live lives that reflect the mind and heart of the Lord Jesus through obedience to how he has called them to think and what he has called them to do. This is the great go of the Great Commission. Where then should we fix this outward focus? To where should we go? We are given the general pattern in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, where our Lord said, But you will receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. Uniquely, during this period, the gospel was first to go to the Jew and then to the Gentile. This verse, in a real sense, provides an outline for the book of Acts and the earliest history of the church of Christ. For the gospel did spread from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. However, in this unique instruction, we are given a general biblical pattern for our own obedience to the Great Commission. Our outward focus and activity should first of all be directed to those nearest to us and then to those in successively wider circles out from where we are to the very ends of the earth, like the ripples which move out when a rock is dropped in a still pond. This outward element of the perspective commanded by our Lord leads naturally to a second element. Our perspective and activity must be global, not narrow and provincial. The flow of our gospel witness must not stop with Jerusalem and Judea, as it were. For the Lord commanded us to make disciples of all the nations. Although it would never be possible for any individual or local church to actually carry the gospel to every nation and place on earth, we ought still to have a global focus in our labors which cannot rest satisfied until men are being made true disciples of Christ from every nation, people, and tongue. At this point, a sensitive soul might tend to be overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the course which has been commanded to us by the Lord, especially when we recall how weak we are, how blind the souls of people are, and how fierce our spiritual enemies are in this great conflict. The Lord knew that he was calling us to no small task in his commission, and thus he left us also with the great encouragement in the great commission, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, there is much more that could and should be said about this, but our time is gone. Perhaps sometime we can think about the history of missions and consider the state of our contemporary missionary activities, but that will have to be for another time. Again, next time we will consider the loving and doing aspects of our approach to global missions. But let me end with a quote from Billy Graham from a Christianity Today article in January of 2011. He said, The most important issue we face today is the same the church has faced every century. Will we reach our world for Christ? In other words, will we give priority to Christ's command to go into all the world and preach the gospel? Or will we turn increasingly inward caught up in our own internal affairs or controversies, or simply becoming more and more comfortable with the status quo. 
Will we become inner-directed or outer-directed? The central issues of our times aren't economic or political or social, important as these are. The central issues of our times are moral and spiritual in nature. And our calling is to declare Christ's forgiveness and hope and transforming power to a world that does not know him or follow him. May we never forget this. Well, amen, Mr. Graham. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the commission given to us by our master, our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the marching orders because it tells us what we need to be engaged in. Help us then, Lord, to understand this and put our thoughts and, and then our hearts and actions into seeing how the gospel message can be spread to the ends of the earth. Help us, Father, to glorify you and to seek to fill the earth with your glory. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.